My name is Patrick M. McLennan. I go by Rick. Uh, I'm 63 years old. I was born on July 4th, 1958. Of all things, yes. I was born to be a patriot, I guess. <laughs> uh, so I grew up in a small town, Wilkinsburg, Pennsylvania, just outside the city of Pittsburgh. And uh, uh, I actually attended Grove City College from 1976 to 1980. And as a freshman, I lived with Tim Thompson. Tim and I were actually on the tennis team together at Wilkinsburg High School, and it was nice to know somebody, so we automatically had a friendship uh, established to go to college. I had a great time there. I, ca I can't say that uh, there was ever a bad day at Grove City College. I enjoyed my uh, uh, extracurricular activities. I was a Kappa Alpha Phi fraternity member and uh, played uh, intra-fraternity sports uh, and... Uh, um, I was a history major. I always been interested in history, but I, I was also pre-law, uh, and I did get into law school. I was at Ohio Northern University for a very short period of time, I and mean, I was offered a job back in my hometown as a police officer. So I accepted that position in, in Wilkinsburg as a police officer and uh, left law school thinking that I could always go back to Duquesne Night School and get my law degree if that was something I was destined to do. Uh, but that did not happen. Uh, a couple of years into my police career, I became a detective and uh, began to take investigative courses at the uh, police academy in uh, North Park. And uh, as I took those courses, I noticed that most of the people teaching those courses were FBI agents, and they were very interesting and very experienced people. And uh, I got to know them on a personal basis and uh, began to talk to them after class about their, their careers and uh, express some very limited interest in, in doing what they were doing because I, I didn't think really I could ever get in the FBI. I was 25 years old at the time, and uh, those guys were much older and much more experienced. But they convinced me to take the test, which I did, and uh, uh, I found the test actually harder than the law school entrance exam and didn't <laughs> think I did very well on it. But I got a letter inviting me down for an uh, interview at the uh, Federal Building in Pittsburgh, which was where the FBI office was located at the time. And it was a panel of three agents, and they interviewed me, and uh, miraculously I passed the interview process. So they began a background investigation and went out and started talking to my neighbors. And uh, after an extensive background investigation, I was offered a position in September of 1984. So on September 16th of 1984, I reported to FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. for... Uh, some administrative duties, and then they put us on school buses and drove us down Interstate 95 to Quantico, Virginia, which is a Marine Corps base. And the FBI Academy is located smack dab in the middle of uh, probably the largest Marine Corps base in the United States. Um, and I spent the next uh, four months there. Um, uh, a uh, classmate of mine uh, was Jeff Colleen, and Jeff turns out to have been a Grove City guy, and uh, he was a Pittsburgh guy, and we used to come home together on, occasionally on weekends. He was a newlywed, and uh, we would drive back to Pittsburgh uh, and spend a weekend every once in a while to get away from the academy and the pressures uh, that were involved with that. But uh, my first office assignment was Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, I spent five and a half years in Jackson honing my, my craft and learning how to be a real agent. And it was a small office. It was filled with experienced agents who had, who had been in large offices across the United States, and, and I glommed whatever knowledge I could from them, and then they sent me to a large office, which was Newark, New Jersey, and I was actually in Newark, uh, arrived there in May of 1990, and uh, left in August of 1997. Uh, I was there in 1993, 
when the World Trade Center bombing occurred in February of 93. There was an attempt to bring down the World Trade Center at that time by a truck bomb. It was actually a van that was rented over on uh, the New Jersey side of the Hudson River and uh, was laden with explosives and driven into the parking garage in one of the towers and um, blew up and caused uh, extensive damage but did not bring down the building as they had planned. I think it killed six or seven people, injured maybe a thousand. Um, and the entire investigation, uh, other than for the actual bombing, uh, was on our side of the river in Newark. So I was in the command post uh, and actively working the first World Trade Center bombing case. Uh, so when I uh, uh, ended up working the Flight 93 crash site in Shanksville, I had sort of an eerie recollection that uh, they finally succeeded in, uh, in their plot to bring down the World Trade Center. The actual day of the uh, World Trade Center, uh, uh, September 11, 2001, I was assigned to the Pittsburgh office. I was actually in the Mon Valley Resident Agency, which is a small sub-office located in Charleroi, Pennsylvania. Uh, it was a seven-man office with a supervisor, three professional support personnel. We had a sister, um, what I call a sister resident agency in Johnstown at the time. Uh, it's now in, uh, we call it the Laurel Highlands RA now, and uh, they're in a freestanding building uh, in Richland Township. But at the time, they were right in downtown Johnstown. And there were three agents assigned there, three senior agents. Um, so as uh, part of my routine duties, I was driving into Pittsburgh on September 11th, and I was actually listening to a New York radio station, of all things Howard Stern, who was broadcasting, and he was syndicated at the time. And I had listened to him off and on when I was up in the Newark area. And um, they happened to mention that a, a plane had hit the World Trade Center. And I thought to myself, I've been to the World Trade Center numerous times with my family to the observation deck. Uh, anytime anyone came up to visit, we would go into New York and always included a trip to the World Trade Center observation deck. So I had seen small planes and other aircraft up and down the Hudson River and the East River and thought, well, one of those planes, obviously uh, something happened and a small plane has hit the World Trade Center, never thinking it was a jetliner. As I got into the Pittsburgh office, uh, I realized the second plane had hit uh, the other tower. So now it was obvious that this was not uh, a pleasure craft or something. This was commercial jetliners obviously being, you know, used as missiles to fly into those buildings. We, uh, we had a break room in the Pittsburgh office. I went in there to watch television to see what was going on. And there was a report that there may have been a plane going over the city of Pittsburgh and may have actually crashed in Somerset County. So I, uh, I knew that that was our territory. That was my sister uh, resident agency territory, Somerset County. So I immediately headed back to my car and began to head out of the city. They were starting to lock the city down, actually, because there were reports the plane might have been targeting the U.S. Steel building. There were various reports coming in, none of them accurate. But I called home and I, I said to my wife, please pack me a bag. I'm headed up to Somerset. I don't know how long I'm going to be there, but uh, probably at least a week. So give me uh, a couple of suits and uh, some other clothing and uh, some tactical gear and things that I have at the, at the house. Get, get me a go bag ready. And she agreed to do that. I made it home from the city to Peters Township in record time. I think I probably had the red light on and the siren the whole way down the parkway in 79. And I got to the house before she even had the bag packed and uh, finished packing the bag, got back in my car and drove up to, uh, 
drove up to Somerset. I had spoken to my supervisor, Wells Morrison. He was uh, telling us that we were probably going to be conducting interviews to take business attire. Uh, we weren't quite sure what we were going to be doing, but we were going to meet at the Somerset Barracks of the Pennsylvania State Police, which I'd been to before. I was familiar with the territory. We rallied at the, at the State Police Barracks and then went over to the actual crash site. At the time, there were volunteer firemen still trying to put out some low-level fires. The, the plane had crashed and much of the jet fuel had gone into the woods adjacent to the crash site and the woods were very hazy and smoky as I recall. It was almost like a fog. Uh, there was clearly the smell of, uh, of fuel in the air uh, and burning rubber from the tires and uh, there were people standing around um, and it was obvious to me that there were no survivors. In fact, you couldn't even tell that there was a jet or any aircraft that had actually crashed at the site. I was surprised by the lack of evidence. No real pieces that were identifiable as an aircraft were visible anywhere. And there was a shadow in the ground. I, I remember seeing what looked like a shadow of an aircraft. And uh, that was about it. Uh, so it was obvious that this was not a rescue mission of any kind. There were no survivors and this was going to be a crime scene that was very large in scale and um, was going to have to be secured, obviously, from the public and from the media. And my boss came up to me and Wells Morrison asked me if I would liaison with the state police who had a perimeter set up. And uh, he asked me to uh, work with their people to ensure that the next day when we began to have our evidence response teams show up uh, and get set up to, uh, to do this recovery, that only per persons who were authorized to be in the site actually showed up at the site. Uh, and I told him I would be happy to do that. So uh, I was tasked with uh, uh, site security uh, at uh, Flight 93 crash site in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Uh, my next recollection is that the next day when we showed up at the, uh, at the crash site, that the FAA was there, the NTSB, uh, other folks who had worked crash sites and, and knew much more about obviously plane crashes than, than I did or anybody really with the FBI. They were standing there and we were sort of surveying things and I asked the one uh, NTSB investigator, I said, uh, where's the plane? And he said, it's in that hole. And there was a very shallow hole at the time and I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, he said, uh, the physics involved, he said, think of the aircraft like a straw. It's mostly hollow and it's very light and we're looking at a reclaimed uh, strip mine. They've filled it in, so the dirt itself is not packed like regular earth would be. Uh, it's, uh, it's sort of not solid. And he said, if you've got a plane coming in at roughly five, 600 knots, and it noses into the ground, it's going to be in that hole. Most of the parts are going to be, and it's going to be deep. And I said, wow, I never thought of it like that, but it was absolutely true. Uh, the other interesting part was the plane had carried a lot of U.S. mail and the lighter materials had actually got caught up in the wind and they were carried a great distance uh, in the air and a lot of it was settling. We were getting reports that some of this stuff was being found as far as uh, away as Indian Lakes, which was sort of a resort area in uh, Somerset County, not far from the crash site, uh, maybe as the crow flies uh, a mile or two. Uh, and the aerial photos kind of show that. The er earlier aerial photographs that were taken by the Bureau kind of show Indian Lakes uh, uh, juxtaposed to the, to the actual crash site. 
Uh, but it was interesting to me that those lighter materials had traveled that far. So we're, there were people reporting things found, you know, miles away. Uh, there was also a small pond adjacent to the crash site, a couple of homes down there, none of which were really damaged. Power lines were down, telephone lines were down. Uh, and there was one gentleman that was uh, at the pond and heard the plane coming in. He was actually fishing. So he was uh, probably the only eyewitness uh, to the event other than neighbors who saw the uh, plane passing overhead. But I think he was the only person who actually saw the plane uh, crash. Um, some other people had responded very quickly. Neighbors and things had gone up there when they, when they realized there was a plane crash, but there was nothing to be done. Volunteer fire companies, as I say, were there, uh, and we met with those folks. Uh, the next several days, equipment was brought in. And because of the World Trade Center and the Pentagon situation, all of the eastern seaboard evidence response teams for the FBI had actually gone to those sites. So everything from Pittsburgh West was actually brought in uh, uh, as far as FBI teams, uh, evidence response teams. And uh, I think we may have had as many as eight or nine teams there from as far away as Milwaukee, Chicago, Cincinnati, Louisville. Knoxville, um, just to name a few, um, and, and they all showed Detroit. The reason I remembered Detroit was there was a classmate of mine with the Detroit ERT team, Steve Dumphy, and when Steve showed up, it was a familiar face, and, and we reminisced about our time in the Bureau, but, uh, but he was up there with the Detroit team. So there were a number of people on site, and each one of those teams would bring in a large truck plus a trailer filled with equipment. Uh, the crash site itself, being a reclaimed strip mine, uh, was desolate. It was very arid. It had been very dry up there, and we were at altitude. Somerset County is higher than the Pittsburgh area. Uh, I don't know, some, some maybe 2,200 feet above sea level. Sun was beating down on us, um, and the dirt road leading into the uh, actual impact crater uh, was very dusty, and dust was being, you know, brought up into the air and it was mixing with the, the smell of the jet fuel and, and uh, I hate to say it but the smell of human remains and some other things so there was uh, a whole lot of uh, odor and, and dust coming up from the uh, from the area surrounding the impact crater. Uh, the actual FBI command post was set up some distance away uh, at an area that the strip mine had used as a headquarters, I guess. There were some tin buildings up there, a warehouse that the state police were using for their people. Uh, they set up a credentialing center uh, up near the command posts. Uh, Pennsylvania sent some uh, agencies up there. Uh, the command post for the FBI was set up in a trailer uh, with a sign for the FBI, and our people had computers set up there, and, and that was the physical command post for the FBI. I was stationed uh, as the crow flies a quarter of a mile away, I could look up and see the command post for the FBI, but I was down near the impact crater, and I set up with my team of um, uh, troopers from the Pennsylvania State Police uh, to set up the uh, security checkpoints for people that were going to be coming in and working the site. Uh, so uh, I had communications with, with uh, our main command post and was able to talk to them and get instructions from them as to how we were going to proceed and uh, it was like a small city. Suddenly it just propped up out of nowhere. And um, United Airlines brought in a large um, uh, pre-manufactured home uh, set up 
uh, electrical power to it, telephone lines. They brought in two rider rental trucks that were huge and filled with equipment. They had obviously worked crash sites before and, uh, and knew what to bring to this sort of recovery effort. Uh, and so we uh, liaised with them and, and set up a uh, sort of a unified command down at the actual impact crater. Uh, and everybody had an understanding as to who was going to do what and what the roles would be. Uh, the state police had people in the wood line every 50 feet set up in a circle around the entire mining area. Uh, we were trying to keep the media out. They were very interested in getting in there and getting a look, and we kept them at bay. Uh, the media had a, an entire city set up, and some of the aerial photography shows just how many uh, uh, satellite uh, dishes and things that they had set up, and they, they put a tent city up approximately a mile away from the impact crater. They were always probing our lines and trying to, to find a way in, unfortunately, because uh, they always think that the government's lying to them and they want to they get in and, and nose around. And we just couldn't allow that to happen because this was a crime scene like no other. So the dirt road was problematic because of the dust. We were, we were having to eat there uh, when people would come in to work. Uh, they would be there the entire day. There was no breaking for lunch to, to leave the site. Once you were credentialed and came in, uh, you didn't leave, and, and the days were long. One of the things we used to keep people out, besides the actual photographic credentials, uh, was a system that the state police came up with, and that was a system of wristbands. And uh, it was a plastic one-time-use wristband like hospitals use, and uh, we would put them on people uh, when they would come down to work the site and then take them off and, and to ensure that the media didn't know how we were using these things. We had a garbage can set aside, and I would... Each and every person that would come out, I would cut their wristband off and throw it in the garbage can so it couldn't be seen, so the media couldn't figure out. And then every day, the color of the wristband changed. Uh, so that was a secondary uh, way to secure the site. Uh, as people came in to work the site, um, more and more agencies showed up. There had to be a brief every morning, a safety brief. And we did have some issues. There were a couple of injuries that occurred with some sharp objects and things down there. So, as they say, there were hazardous materials around, human remains and that sort of thing. So had to be very careful with that sort of thing and what people were exposed to. They were wearing Tyvek suits. They were wearing boots. Uh, there were decontamination areas, both uh, wet decontamination and dry decontamination. Um, but this began to resemble a small city. And at, at some point, I was tasked with basically becoming the mayor of the small city. Uh, I took on responsibilities that I never thought I would have as an FBI agent. Uh, certain things had to be done. We had to keep the road open uh, because we had to get uh, ambulances and fire trucks down there. Occasionally a fire would pop up and we would have to get a fire truck in and we didn't want anybody to get hit by a fire truck. Trying to keep the road open, it was very narrow, uh, it was kind of difficult. We also ran into some issues with um, sanitation. You know, we had to have porta-potties, and uh, we had to have dumpsters, and those things had to be emptied, and they couldn't do it while we were actively working the site. So I had to coordinate uh, with the folks who were responsible for that, the private companies, to come in either late in the evening or very early in the morning before my folks got there to work. Uh, food also became a problem. Uh, fortunately, there were so many good people in Somerset County that uh, were on the Red Cross Chuck Wagon and the Salvation Army uh, Wagon. Uh, we had the luxury of having the Salvation Army at the first checkpoint uh, where I would check people in in the morning and they could have coffee and donuts and that sort of thing. And then the Red Cross would show up 
a little later in the morning and have enough breakfast for everyone on site. And I would let them into the second checkpoint uh, a little further down towards the impact crater and they would serve breakfast. And uh, I can't say enough about those folks. The uh, Salvation Army would stay all night and they would actually serve coffee to the, uh, to the troopers who were out in the woods. And those guys, you know, separated by 50 feet, they had fires going at night. If, you, if there would have been any aircraft flying, you would have seen a ring of fire uh, around the, uh, the impact crater, which would have been interesting. But uh, nothing was flying at the time. Everything had been grounded. Uh, the only aircraft that I saw in the air the whole time I was up there was a state police helicopter and an FBI aircraft that was being used to transport evidence uh, to and from Manassas, Virginia, so that it could be taken to the FBI laboratory and analyzed. So the dirt, the dust, um, just the overall conditions at the site became sort of to the point where I called my people at the command post and said, look, is there any way you can come and wet this down, maybe have a fire truck spray it, keep the dust down, because um, who knows what people are breathing in here, and uh, it could be, you know, sort of a hazardous thing, and maybe years down the road people could, you know, develop illnesses as a result of this. So not only did they wet the road down, but Mike Suey, uh, Mike was a supervisor at the time and was at the command post, Mike arranged for the entire road from the FBI command post down to the impact crater to be paved. And they did that overnight. Now people would come up to me and said, hey, can't you do anything about this dust in the days prior to this actual paving project? And I said, I'll see what I can do. When the folks came in the next morning, the, the pavement was still warm and there was still steam rising from the asphalt. And they looked at me and said, you got the road paved. You are the mayor. <laughs> and I said, no, Mike Suey got the road paved. I gave him full credit, but I asked him to do it. So they were just amazed by the fact that we could get that done. And so uh, uh, I look like a hero anyhow. And people could eat in the child tents and things without dust coming up anymore. One of our female special agents came up to me and said, hey, uh, you know, not for nothing, but these porta potties are getting a little, I don't know, unsanitary. <laughs> I'll put it politely. Could you arrange for just a porta potty for the females that are up here? And so I did. And I put a sign on it, women only. And um, that, uh, that sufficed to, to keep the guys away from the women's only porta potty and made them feel a little better. And it was a little more sanitary for them, I guess. Um, but those were the conditions that we were kind of living under. You had to think about stuff like that. Um, ATF guys, at, at one point, there was 12 or 14 of the ATF agents from the Pittsburgh office, and I knew quite a few of them because I'd worked some church fires with them in the past. Uh, they put a sign on one of the porta potties that said ATF headquarters. I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, Self-deprecating kinds of stuff. But there wasn't a lot of humor up there. It was, it was sort of everybody was very serious because we knew our mission and we knew what was going on in New York and the Pentagon. And um, we were watching the news reports at night when we would leave the site. But days were very long, uh, 12 to 14 hours. I would get there as early as 6 o'clock in the morning and I wouldn't leave sometimes till 8 o'clock in the evening. Uh, I would get a list of people who were allowed on the crash site the following day. Uh, every evening I would go up to the command post and see who was authorized to be on the site, and I would have that list to start the day the next morning. 
So we would go have dinner, uh, late dinners, and, and watch the news at the local cafes and things. People were very generous with us, um, treated us very well in Somerset County. Uh, people were actually making food, uh, uh, desserts, full meals, and taking them out to the troopers who were at the various crossroads to uh, cut off traffic and make sure that only authorized vehicles were allowed into the area. And they were feeding those guys just uh, you know, uh, out of their own kindness and, and their own wallets. And uh, as I say, some of the local restaurants and things were sending food up. Uh, a lot of the food that we were eating off of the uh, uh, Salvation Army and the uh, Red Cross um, was stuff that was donated um, by various organizations and things. So people were very, very good to us up there. Um, everybody was kind of pulling together. I do remember that. Uh, the feeling at the time was the country was all kind of pulling in the same direction. As we worked the site, uh, I had to, and we paved the road, I had to put signs on one side of the road, no parking, which would allow garbage trucks and, uh, and, and fire trucks and things and ambulances to get down in there because uh, we had to think about the safety of the people who were working the site. There were as many as 500 people uh, some days working the site. There was a berm uh, that was next to some retaining ponds that you could actually walk and observe the activities at the at the impact crater and I used to walk down there and take uh, visitors down and, and keep them away from the actual site but the overlook was sufficient that you could see all the activity that was going on it looked like ants it, it looked like you know just everybody working and, and pulling in, in the same direction and raking through uh, through mounds of dirt heavy equipment was brought in uh, the, uh, the, the aircraft some parts of it were as deep as 35 40 feet uh, I remember when they found the voice uh, voice recorder. Uh, it was very deep in the in the hole at the time, and when they brought it out, it, you know, they it was damaged obviously, and it had to be flown to uh, to Washington D.C. to actually the laboratory in Quantico. My boss at the time, Wells Morrison, asked me if I wanted to fly the uh, uh, black box, which is actually orange, uh, to Manassas, Virginia, for for analysis, and I said no. Um, uh, I've been in the bureau now. I think at the time, 16 years. And I said, you know, there's some new agents here, some guys that really, they're living this history and they're going to be able to tell their grandkids. So why don't you let uh, newer guys have a piece of this? And he said, sure. Uh, so Pat Halley and Pete Stoneham were uh, the two agents who flew uh, both black boxes at separate times down to Manassas. They each ended up in Seattle because Boeing Corporation had to recreate the black boxes because they were damaged and could not be downloaded until they had uh, uh, been able to get uh, get them out there to their facility in Seattle. So both agents had to end up flying cross-country. So I was kind of happy that I didn't take on that responsibility. Um, uh, I had my own responsibilities down at the crash site, and I didn't want to leave it. One of the agents assigned to the RA with me, Greg Craig, I think was only on the job a week uh, when 9-11 happened, and he was up there with us. So he was just starting his career uh, and was a week into the job when this happened. And he is still with the Bureau today. I remember at one point, uh, the families, uh, they were arranged to come in. And uh, we had a temporary memorial set up, up by the FBI command post. It was an overlook where you could look down. You could see the, the area where the impact crater was, but you really couldn't see much in detail. And so the families were able to stand up there. And at the time, work kind of ceased at the site. And we allowed them to have some, some time. They were brought in by bus. And uh, the state police had arranged to stand alongside the road and salute them when they came in, which was very nice. And uh, 
the families brought artifacts, teddy bears, flowers, all kinds of things that they left. And uh, like I said, we stopped working to pay homage to those folks and to honor their sacrifice. I actually hadn't even considered the human cost at the time until I saw that. We were too busy to actually think about it. And uh, I kind of lost it for a little while. I went up to my car and sat down. Just had a few moments to myself. But that, uh, that affected me. Still does when I think about it. Anyhow, uh, when they left, we went back to work. And, um, you know, our job continued, our part of it. And we, uh, we had, uh, we had a temporary morgue set up at the uh, National Guard Armory, which was near the Somerset Airport. And there were refrigerated trucks down there so that any body parts that were found were, were taken there immediately and uh, uh, put into the, uh, the trailers, refrigerated trailers, because we knew we were going to have to do DNA on those and uh, try to identify those folks. Uh, and uh, eventually that was done. Uh, all of that evidence, uh, we were able to identify every single person on the aircraft through DNA analysis. Other things that were occurring at the time were, as I say, every time we found a uh, something evidentiary, we found weapons, uh, the actual knives used by the uh, by the hijackers to kill the pilots, and uh, those were flown down to photographed, of course, and then flown down, but. Daily photographs were being taken of the things that were being found in the pit, and they were posted on a uh, a large bulletin board so that everyone working the site could see what was being recovered. Because there was such a large expanse that was being worked, you didn't always know what other teams were finding. And uh, at one point, we actually drained the small pond that I mentioned where the man was fishing. Uh, it was some hundred yards away from the uh, from the impact crater. Uh, it was thought that maybe the black boxes were in that pond, uh, so they brought in quite a bit of hose and generators to uh, pump the water out of the pond to a depth where they could see actually what was in it. Uh, so that was quite the operation to watch. Uh, other things that occurred that I recall, I remember this, uh, the uh, uh, Attorney General of the United States came down, John Ashcroft, he showed up with the director of the FBI, Robert Mueller, uh, the U.S. attorney for Pittsburgh at the time, uh, Mary Beth Buchanan, um, some other dignitaries. I think the governor was there. Anyhow, they came down, and they were given a brief in one of the tents, and they were shown a lot of the photographs uh, of the evidence and things that we were finding in the crash site. And um, they came by and shook a lot of people's hands and just talked to folks who were working and... Uh, you know, just showing support for our efforts there. The interesting aspect of it was that because of the huge expanse of fire at the Pentagon and the collapse of the World Trade Center, that uh, there was no real evidence coming out of either one of those sites. Everything had burned up. So the stuff that was coming out of our site, especially like identification documents and things of the actual hijackers, uh, that was treasure trove because it was, uh, it was the only thing that was tying you know, any of these people that committed this crime to the crime itself. I thought to myself at the time, 
If you were on that plane trying to bring it down, as the passengers eventually we found out they did, um, you could not have put that plane down in a place that would have been as lucky, I guess, to use a term, as, as it was, because no one on the ground was hurt. There was no loss of life uh, except those who were on the aircraft. Uh, it was a reclaimed strip mine, so the ground was soft, and uh, so the parts of the plane were somewhat contained, therefore the evidence was somewhat contained, and uh, it was being recovered by the folks who were working the site every day. Uh, new new things were found, which, you know, were significant evidence. Um, and not that you were going to prosecute people based on the evidence, but you might. There might be co-conspirators out there that you might be able to tie, tie the case into, and in fact there were. Uh, so those are the sorts of things you have to think about, and, and so that was very important. Uh, so from that standpoint, uh, we were very lucky that that is where the plane came down. Uh, other things that were going on, let's see, the, uh, the command post uh, would, would give me daily briefs on what to expect if there were things that were changing or there were protocols that were going to change uh, or if dignitaries were coming down or if other folks were coming down so that I would get advance notice before they would get there so that we could prepare to, uh, to take them out on the berm and let them see some things without taking them to the actual impact crater. Um, there was no photography allowed on site except for official photography uh, and Coleman Bates, the Pittsburgh uh, primary photographer, was responsible for all of the photography. Um, I did catch one person from United using a small disposable camera and I had to, to take that uh, from that person um, because I told him that this was a uh, crime scene and, and those photographs he was taking were actual, could be used as actual evidence. and you know, would need to be maintained, so I had to, I had to take that. I wasn't happy to do it, but it, it needed to be done. Um, the state police guys that I was working with, I got to, I, I knew some of them beforehand. I had worked with uh, Troops A and B uh, in Western Pennsylvania uh, during my time at the Mon Valley RA, and um, I knew some of them, and then I met a lot of guys from Central Pennsylvania and Eastern Pennsylvania that were detailed out to our scene. They had hundreds, literally hundreds of uh, troopers working 12-hour shifts, and uh, they would have a changing of the guard every afternoon, and I would watch the new guys coming in to, to go out into the woods and, and sit and, and guard the perimeter, and then the other team would leave for the day and go have their meals and, and get some shot eye and then come back to uh, come back to the scene. Other recollections, there was a memorial service on the uh, last Sunday that we were on the site, and FBI chaplains came out and they actually uh, had a really nice uh, program set up for us and everybody, that all work had ceased. Um, the teams were packing up their things to leave and uh, we were sitting on the hillside. Every, uh, every place that could be occupied by, by a body was occupied and um, they, were, they were down and set up by the uh, United Mobile Home there. Uh, and had a lectern set up with with speakers and things, so we had uh, we had our own memorial service there at the site, and then uh, we sang some hymns and things. But it was a it was a very moving and very patriotic sort of, um, as well as religious, obviously, uh, uh, ceremony. And I think it made all of us feel a little better as we were leaving up there. I was surprised how swiftly we were able to uh, to button things up and. Um, 
you know, we weren't trying to put the aircraft back together, which is what you do in some crash scenes. Flight 800 out of New York um, actually crashed into uh, into the bay, and they uh, they were picking up that aircraft from the seabed and putting it back together to determine what the cause was at. We knew what the cause of this was. Um, we knew that this was a terrorist act, so we weren't putting the aircraft back together per se. But we did need to prove that there was no external forces that had been applied to the aircraft. There was speculation that our own U.S. government had shot the plane down. Uh, there was speculation, you know, a missile hit the airplane. Uh, at one point, to prove the uh, skeptics wrong, for lack of a better term, we formed a huge line of uh, folks shoulder to shoulder and uh, is probably 200 people long and we walked the entire distance from the impact crater uh, up the slope of the mine the strip mine all the way out to the drag line which was a very large piece of machinery used to um, extract coal from the ground and the, coal, the, the company had left the drag line there because it's just too big to take away from site uh, somebody had walked up the a crane portion of the drag line it was probably I don't know 75 feet above ground and hung an American flag from it at some point I remember that seeing that fly over the the site and we as I said walked the entire distance up to the drag line several hundred yards there was nothing no piece of the aircraft was found um, it's absolutely pristine um, just whatever happened to be growing there and uh, and, and basically reclaimed dirt um, so we were convinced that nothing had hit the aircraft and we could all say with a straight face that this was a purely uh, man-made cause that the passengers on that plane had taken it, taken action and, and forced it into the ground before it could get to the Capitol and, and do any damage in Washington, D.C., which um, speculation was that it was aimed for the actual Capitol building or the White House. Uh, so that was obviously... Uh, not going to occur because the people on that plane, those heroes on that plane, got together and uh, did something about it. Uh, and then, you know, now people are dying uh, from uh, causes that they believe are tied directly to uh, the work that they did at the World Trade Center, at the Pentagon. Uh, two personal friends of mine who worked at Flight 93 crash site both died of pancreatic cancer. Uh, Special Agent Bob Craig, Special Agent Paul Wilson. Uh, Bob Craig was actually in charge of the Pittsburgh Evidence Response Team at the time of the uh, crash, and he ran the operation for Pittsburgh up there. Bob died several years later from pancreatic cancer. Paul Wilson was assigned to the Johnstown Resident Agency. He was one of the three senior agents up there. Uh, Paul had come in from New York shortly before I came in from Newark, so we were both kind of new back to Pittsburgh. He grew up in Sharon, Pennsylvania. So he was from western Pennsylvania also. And uh, Paul succumbed to cancer and they tied both of these cancers back to their work at the uh, at the crash site in Shanksville. You know, there are other folks that I'm aware of that I wasn't personally familiar with that have passed away from various diseases as a result of uh, their work at any of the three 9-11 uh, sites. I've been examined by doctors. Uh, they have baselines on, on my uh, blood work and things like that, uh, lung capacity and those sorts of things. Um, and every year uh, 
we're invited back for a medical examination and to uh, determine if we are having any residual result uh, effects from, from working at the crash site. We continue to work leads uh, and do interviews. Uh, there were people that had seen the plane at various times and we needed to go out and interview them and see what their recollections were. Uh, there were other uh, things. Uh, it came to our attention that there was a call made from the aircraft. Uh, I think uh, the gentleman's name was Edward Felt. He had made a call from the bathroom of Flight 93 as it was flying over western Pennsylvania. And that call went into the 911 center in Westmoreland County uh, and there was a recording of that call. Uh, so we were tasked with recovering uh, not only the original but any copies of that recording uh, for whatever evidentiary purpose they might have. And I remember uh, getting the uh, audio tape and bringing it down to the RA and listening to it. And it was just chilling to actually hear somebody uh, that I knew had passed away weeks before in that crash actually speaking about the takeover of the aircraft. And um, I thought to myself, wow. You know, that must have just been a very difficult thing for him to do, uh, to try to get that call out. He was risking his life, basically, to, to make that call. So those were the sorts of things that were still going on for weeks and months later. Uh, and that became the priority, uh, that uh, that investigation, everything else kind of took a backseat to what was going on with that. So we sort of... I won't say split into two agencies, but there was the criminal side of the house that continued to do the old uh, mission of the Bureau, which was law enforcement. And then there was the intelligence side of the house, and we morphed into more of an intelligence agency to coordinate better with CIA and our partners overseas. Um, and so uh, we took on more of an overseas responsibility. Uh, I think when I came in to the FBI, uh, there might have been 15, uh, maybe 20 uh, legal attaches around the world, and now there's there's probably over 50, maybe between 50 and 100. Uh, so we're everywhere now, um, and uh, that's a direct result of terrorism. Now, Grove City prepares a lot of people for the ministry, right? And I always looked at my job not so much as a um, as a job or as a career, but as a calling. I always thought that God put me in that position to do what I did and continue to do, which is protect people. So I retired officially as an agent on December 31st, 2017, after 33 years and four months of service. In 2018, I was working private security for United States Steel Corporation in Pittsburgh. Um, and then I got a call in the summer, early summer of 2018 from FBI headquarters, and they were proposing to bring back certain retired agents, retired supervisory agents, who they thought could aid uh, the National Threat Operations Center in Clarksburg, West Virginia. Um, Parkland had happened down in Florida, uh, and uh, they believed that that was an intelligence failure and that people at the National Threat Operations Center had kind of dropped the ball on that. And they were looking for some experienced guys and gals to, uh, to go down there and work. and. Um, one of the assistants to the director asked me if I would consider coming back to the Bureau, and I said, yeah, I would consider it, you know, what's involved, and they explained it. And um, so I came back, and in uh, January of 2019, I began working as a supervisor at the National Threat Operations Center. So after 9-11, the FBI gave up certain 
responsibilities as part of our mission. Uh, the U.S. Marshals Service picked up most of the fugitive investigations that we used to do. The United States Secret Service picked up many of the banking and white-collar fraud stuff that we used to do. Um, some of the other agencies have, have taken various other parts of our mission because you can't be all things to all people. Uh, so we've had to uh, take more agents from the criminal side and put them into the uh, domestic terrorism, international terrorism uh, side of the house uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, and then we still have our foreign counterintelligence that we have to do, um, Chinese, Russian. They're always probing our lines, always trying to uh, grab intelligence from us, uh, learn our secrets, learn our classified information. Uh, so it's become more difficult, obviously, in the age of computers and the Internet and everything that goes along with that uh, to protect those assets. Uh, as well as intellectual property of our, you know, defense contractors and things of that sort. So I've noticed a, you know, a huge difference since 9-11 okay. in, in that sort of thing. Even though it's 20 years past, I still have some very vivid memories of 9-11. Of and um, some of my memories are as vivid as they were that day. And some are getting a little hazier, obviously, as I, as I grow older. Um, but... I think the vast majority, the overall effect of it, I still feel. I still feel some of the emotion, some of the raw emotion that was present at that time comes back to me occasionally. And um, it can be a little raw sometimes. Initially, I didn't go back for the first couple of years. And then I had some family come up. My in-laws came up. And we took them out. And um, I showed them the site. At the time... They had fences set up. You really couldn't get very close to the impact crater and to the actual area. And there were uh, temporary memorials set up. It was a chain link fence. And people would just come up and put things on it. You know, it was really emotional for a lot of folks. And they would leave things behind and hats and flowers and teddy bears and just all kinds of things, coins. Um, and, and so I showed that to them. And that was the first time I'd been back. And it was difficult for me to kind of talk to them about it because uh, everything was sort of out of perspective. You know, I wasn't right down in an area where I could really show them a whole lot. It was just a, sort of a vast expanse and an overview where I could point out certain things. And nature had obviously reclaimed some of it. Uh, so it looked very different to me. Even the road into it was different than the roads that we took back in, in, in the time where we were working it. Then I went back several times um, as part of my job. I took over as supervisor at the Mon Valley RA, and I did that for almost seven years. So my last seven years, I was supervisor of the office where I'd been for 20 years. And so as part of that, um, I would go up in my official capacity as a supervisor with the FBI, and we would have command posts set up for the events because dignitaries would be coming in, the president, the vice president, various members of Congress would show up, uh, and uh, the families, of course. Uh, so that would be a perfect target for terrorists to, to do something. Uh, so we always had a special event set up. Uh, and then I, uh, I went back several times uh, just in my personal capacity. I took my wife up when they opened the visitor center, and uh, we spent the day up there, and I introduced her to a number of people that I knew up there that were working. Uh, and, um, you know, we heard the various speakers and, and stayed around for, for the memorial service. 
and uh, I've been up there several times and uh, I always keep they always treat us very well uh, I always keep the programs from those events and uh, uh, the little uh, boutonnieres that they give us to put on our, our suit jackets and things so I have a collection of those sorts of things because it's very meaningful to me still to have been a part of that but I don't think I'll go back this year um, I've been asked by um, my superiors at the FBI at the National Threat Operations Center to sort of do a 20-year um, program for the folks who work down there. So I, I think I'm going to put something together in that regard, but uh, I don't think I'll be able to make it up to Shanksville this year.